You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn, first of all, to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1. We'll read the verses 15 to 23 of Ephesians 1, and then we'll move on to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We turn then first to Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15, where the word of our God reads as follows, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the Father, uh, or that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Then we turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became models to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That reading should have been 2 Thessalonians 1, but 1 Thessalonians 1 will also do. Let us turn now to the Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church through whom the Father governs all things. 
How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, on this Father's Day Sunday, it is good to spend a little bit of time reflecting what our fathers mean or meant to us. And then in the process of doing so, one of the things that comes up in the conversation is that we frequently underestimate what it is that they do for us. Call it ignorance, ingratitude, or whatever you will. The reality is that often we fail to see and to appreciate the efforts, the sacrifices, and everything else that fathers do and how fathers go out of their way to take care of us, provide for us, and help us. In other words, on Father's Day, we are reminded that often, and Mother's Day too, that when it comes to our parents, we tend to take a lot of things for granted. Yes, and in some ways, this can also be said about our relationship to Jesus Christ, our Savior. We take a lot of what he did and what he still does and what he will do yet for granted as well. Why, in some ways, we were reminded of that fact last week when we dealt, for example, with Lord's Day 18 of the Catechism. For there is a common assumption among Christians that once Christ Jesus ascended into heaven, he was finished. That it was holiday time for him. But that's not true. For along with ascension comes, as we were reminded, intercession. The fact that Christ continues to plead our case above. Along with ascension, there also comes extraction. The fact that Christ takes us, his members, up to himself into heaven where he is as our head. And then there is, too, the preparation. After ascension, there comes his return. And that requires some effort on his part as well. So you can say, and you must realize, beloved, that Jesus Christ is very busy in heaven. Yes, and this is something that Lord's Day 19 of the Catechism wants to get across to us as well. For it stops and it reflects on those next words of the Apostles' Creed, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Also, these words testify to our Savior's ongoing efforts on our behalf. In what way? Well, I'd like to preach to you on the following theme. The work of Christ goes on until we confess, first of all, a sitting Christ, a blessing Christ, and finally, a judging Christ. 
Well, beloved, to sit or the act of sitting can mean different things. For example, dad has been busy all day at work. He comes home, he puts out the garbage, he mows the lawn, he fixes a bicycle or two, he does a number of other things around the house, and then he sits down and he puts up his feet. In such a case, sitting down usually means that's it for the day. I'm not doing any more. It has to do with the idea of rest and resting. It may also have, at the same time, something to do with the idea of completion, in that all the jobs around the house that need doing are now done. But now when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, we see something quite different. We see something of the latter, but none of the former, what do I mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, After he, meaning Christ, had provided purification for our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In other words, the ascension of Christ and his sitting down in heaven means that his work of purification is done. In other words, the suffering... The sacrifice, the crucifixion, the paying for all of our sins, it is done. It is over. It is finished. But then while sitting down at the right hand of the Father signals the end of Christ's work of purification, it also signals the beginning of a whole new work. When we sit down in our easy chairs, it means one thing usually, But sitting down on a throne means something else entirely. For when you sit down on a throne, a whole new task awaits you. And it is one that has everything to do with ruling and reigning. But that is now what happened to our Savior. He went up to heaven And there the Father issued the following invitation in line with Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Here the Father is rewarding his son for a work well done. But here the Father is also giving his son a whole new role and a whole new task to perform. He goes instantly from humiliation to exaltation. From serving to ruling. And isn't that precisely what Ephesians 1 describes too? God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given. Not only in the present age, but also in the one that is to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him head over everything for the church. Notice a few things in that quotation from Ephesians 1. First, notice Paul skips from resurrection to enthronement and he ignores, as it were, the ascension. He goes straight to the throne. 
And secondly, the Apostle Paul describes a throne that is unlike any other, for notice how high it is. It's far above, he says, everything else imaginable. And third, look at what God places under the feet of him who sits on the throne. All things, it says very clearly, are there. Nothing is excluded. And fourth, notice as well, if you notice carefully, the scripture here says more even than the catechism. Answer 50 speaks about Christ as head of his church through whom the Father governs all things. Meanwhile, the scripture depicts Christ as the head over everything, and then it adds this motivation for the church. So what's the picture here? It is one of Jesus Christ sitting as the exalted ruler and head of the universe. It is one of Christ sitting and ruling supreme over everything and everyone. It is one which climaxes finally in the church. As Paul writes, Christ rules over all for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Oh, beloved, how good it is to know this. The history of our world so often appears to be the staggerings of a drunken sailor. And the history of the church has more than a little in common with the ups and downs of a yo-yo. Yet scripture teaches that behind it all, there is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is leading and who is guiding and directing all things. We may not know what will happen, but he knows. We may be full of whys, but he knows why. Yes, and that should give us confidence. And in particular, it should give us confidence as we live in this world filled with earthquakes and wars, terrorism, moral breakdown, as well as environmental disasters. And at the same time, it gives us something to tell our children, also these little children here as they grow up. Teach them that chance is not in control, that luck doesn't happen, that fate is is nonsense. Teach them instead that Jesus Christ, who claimed them at their baptism, rules and reigns supreme. Teach them that he sits on that throne in heaven through whom the Father governs all things. Because we have a sitting, but not resting, Savior. But yet that's not all for in addition to sitting and reigning. 
Christ is also, you'll notice, dispensing and supporting. That's something that answer 51 of the Catechism reminds us about. First, there is the fact that by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. And of course, the first reference here is to Pentecost and to the outpouring of the Spirit's gifts at that time upon the church. And what sort of gifts did he give then? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, are the gifts of tongues, or the ability to speak in real yet unlearned human languages. We're not talking about some kind of unknown Holy Spirit language, but we're talking about real, concrete human languages. And you know, every time I go to China... I think about this particular gift and how how great it would be if the Holy Spirit would enable me to speak Mandarin without even having taken one language lesson. Well, I'm still waiting. Another gift associated with Pentecost is miracles. And again, one can dream and then about the ability to perform real miracles, not the kind of questionable and debatable stuff that we so often hear about today. And a third gift connected to all of this is courage. So often when the criticism and the pressures mount, we saints begin to shrivel and become insecure. Some post-Pentecost courage would surely help. But then, beloved, before we wax too nostalgic, we need to remind ourselves that we are not exactly giftless today. The more spectacular gifts may have dried up, so to speak, but the gifts that we need on a daily basis continue to come down. Indeed, did you notice that descriptive word that is used in the catechism here? It doesn't refer to heavenly gifts merely being given, but it talks about them being poured out. In other words, the gifts of Christ through the Spirit don't just drip, drip, drip out today. No, the catechism reminds us that they're poured out. It's like a tap. And what gushes forth? And what is it that gushes forth? Well, Scripture mentions, for example, the gift of offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists in the early church. Today, the gifts of pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons, the office of all believers, prophets, priests, and kings. The gifts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness that we mentioned last week. The gifts of perseverance, character, hope, and power that you can find in Romans 5. The gifts of salvation, forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the gospel. The gift of the church and the communion of the saints. It just goes on and on. One of the great problems in the church today is not... That we have nothing, but that we have so much. Yes, we have so much, 
But often we avail ourselves of so little of it. A closer daily calling and reliance on the Spirit's gifts would yield a lot more fruit in our lives. We need to stop trying to do everything in our own strengths, as we so often do, and be more dependent and receptive what Christ wants to give us through his spirit. And you know, the same applies to enemies and obstacles. If Christ pours out all kinds of gifts upon his people, he also offers daily support to us. And notice in that connection, the catechism says that by his power, he defends and preserves us against our enemies. Do we still believe that? Do we still count on that? Do we still experience that? You know, recently a certain missionary was in a country where the gospel is officially, constitutionally welcomed, but politically and in reality banned and persecuted. And while in that country... A number of Christians noticed that he used a special study Bible and once they saw it, they all coveted it. He had a few copies with him and they were soon given away and gone. But then he had to go out of the country for a while in order to have his visa renewed. And while outside the country, he planned to buy eight or ten of these so-called study Bibles and take them back and give them away. And he figured he could easily do this because he'd never had any border problems in all of his years of crossing back and forth into this country. But yet, no matter where he looked for this particular study Bible, he couldn't find it. And so in the end, he had to go back empty-handed and rather sad and disappointed. But then lo and behold, as he was re-entering the country of persecution, he and every other traveler was thoroughly searched. The thought of what might have been and of having been caught with so many Bibles in his possession sent shivers down his spine. But you know, it reminded him of something else as well. Namely, that Christ continues to defend and watch out and to preserve his own. This wasn't just luck. It wasn't a close call. It was a sure sign of our Savior's protective care. And that's how it still happens today, as well as yesterday. We may think it's up to us to protect ourselves and that we need to know all the right tactics and approaches, but the truth of the matter is that we need the Lord every day to watch over our lives. And He will. He will because He has promised it. No one, He says in John 10 about His sheep, no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
And that goes for big sheep. And that also applies to little sheep. So, beloved, we have a sitting Christ. We have a blessing Christ. The third thing, we also have a judging Christ. Sounds kind of strange, right, to talk about a judging Christ. But you know, that's what Scripture over and over again teaches us, and that's also why you find it summarized here in answer 52. And you know, in many respects, answer 52 is one of those answers that I, I really love. I love it for its comfort. It opens, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and I eagerly await. I'm not sure that we here identify with those words because we live in a land of freedom and in the midst of lots of comforts. But you know, there are lots of Christians around the world who identify with these words. That's one of the reasons why they love the Heidelberg Catechism, because it speaks with such great comfort to them. They know the sorrow of seeing loved ones killed for the sake of the gospel. They know persecution in the form of having your house burned down, of imprisonment and being fined and evicted and beaten up and fired on the job. But yet their heads are not bowed. And their expectations are not diminished. For oppression inflates hope. So I love this answer for its comfort. In spite of everything, I can lift up my head no matter what. And still be full of expectation. But you know, I love this answer also for its balance. Whom are we waiting for? Well, the Catechism says, summarized in Scripture, we await as judge from heaven, the very same person, who before has submitted himself for my sake to the judgment of God and has removed all the curse from me. We are awaiting the judge. And of course, that's strange, it's odd, it's rather unusual. Who waits for a judge? Everybody dreads it when the judge enters the courtroom. But not this judge. For this judge, notice carefully, this judge is also my my mediator, my intermediary, my, my scapegoat, if you will. And maybe that, that figure of a scapegoat applies best here. Hopefully you remember it. You, you find it in Leviticus 16 about the great day of atonement. There are those two goats, right? The one goat is killed. The other goat is sent out into the wilderness never to return. Well, those two goats represent Christ. He's both the goat that is slain and he's the goat who is sent outside the camp. 
You see, for those who believe, this judge is at bottom not a judge to fear, but a judge to rejoice in, to be grateful about, to await with eager expectation. This judge is your redeemer. So we need to balance things out here. But you know, I also love this last answer of the catechism here in Lord's Day 19 for its bluntness. We don't have a lot of that today, do we? People are far, far too busy being politically correct and overly cautious. And at the same time, it sometimes appears as if these days we cater to everybody's sensitivities and feelings. But in the process, something sometimes gets lost. And what's get lost? Truth. Reality. You know, here the catechism dares to say what the scriptures say over and over again, almost ad nauseum, he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. Now, I don't love the fact that there are enemies, and I certainly don't love the fact But there is condemnation. No one should. And if you do, there's something morally and theologically wrong with you. But yet we need to be reminded that while we have enemies, our enemies are not always Christ's enemies and that only His enemies are really our enemies. And we also need to be reminded that there is such a thing as everlasting condemnation. You know, it's the judge who's coming. Not the entertainer. Not the football or soccer player. The judge is coming. And judges either equip Acquit, or they condemn. And when the greatest judge of all comes, Jesus Christ, he will condemn the ungodly and the immoral. Now, of course, you can deny that. You can try to repackage it. But the the end of the matter is that this is the truth. And this verdict will one day come down. Either innocent or guilty. I hope and pray that none of us hear Christ say to us, guilty. Something to think about, right? If you're an unbeliever at heart, And that's not beyond the realm of possibility that some of you here really in your heart of hearts are unbelievers. It's neither without the realm of possibility that some of you are are hypocrites playing a role 
living up to the expectations of others, not really committed heart, soul, and mind to Jesus Christ. So if you're playing a role, or if in your heart of hearts you don't really believe, then you need to face squarely the fact that condemnation is coming. There's that awesome reality. So as you see it coming towards you, realize that as long as you live and breathe, there is still time to repent and to return to the living God. But if you harden yourself in your unbelief, that day of condemnation, The day when the king of kings says, and the judge of judges says, guilty, will surely come. And finally, beloved, I love this answer, not just for its bluntness, for calling a spade a spade. I love this answer for the fact that it contains so much hope. You know, condemnation is truly a terrible word, but it is not the last word for the children of God. The final word or words for those who believe are the words joy and glory. And notice that we don't even need to worry about how we will get there. For the fact of the matter is that our judge is not just our scapegoat, but he's also our transporter, our guide, and our destination. He will take me and all of his chosen ones to himself in heavenly joy and glory. Isn't that a personal confession of faith? How beautiful. Isn't that a confession of faith full of expectation? He's going to take me and all his chosen ones into heavenly joy and glory. What a challenge. What a confession. And do we seek to make it by prayer and example also our confession? What a blessing if we all can say this truthfully. And what a blessing if one day you get to hear it from the mouths of your children. And you know, that's often where we get to hear it from because we adults, we throw up so many barriers. But our children can sometimes be so transparent. Don't worry. He'll take us and all his people into heavenly joy and glory. He'll do it. He'll do it for me. He'll do it for all of those who love him. He will not take us to some strange place either. He'll take us unto himself. And the end will be joy and glory. No more loneliness. No more cancer, no more depression, 
No more conflict, no more death, no more tears. Only joy and glory. How thankful we should be, beloved, for the ongoing work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.